1: Hi everyone, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we have Brian DeMar, who's Associate Professor of History at Tulane University, and he'll be talking about his new book, Land Wars, The Story of China's Agrarian Revolution, which was published in 2019 by Stanford University Press. Whether as the focus of media reports and documentaries or as destinations for international migrants, China's cities today occupy a lot of bandwidth in the outside world's perception of the country, making it easy to forget that it wasn't always such an urban place. Indeed, beyond just having been more rural than it is now, the People's Republic of China was in many ways founded in the countryside via a rural revolution quite different from anything imagined by Marx or Lenin. Key to this revolution was land reform and a whole host of other transformations in the countryside which are the subject of Brian DeMar's highly engaging new book. Land Wars shows how, between the 1930s and the 1950s, society was transformed in highly local ways in hundreds of thousands of villages across China. The pattern of these transformations, as much psychological as they were political and economic, may have differed from anything imagined by socialism's European grandfathers, but Dumas shows how they followed a trajectory which was sufficiently coherent and hegemonic as to comprise an entire Maoist script for revolution. Understanding this script and how it related to what happened on the ground, the relationship between the literal and the literary, as the author poetically puts it, is key to untangling what happened during this period in China's revolutionary history, which, while still overlooked, has many links to the present through books which remain famous, and indeed through the father of Xi Jinping himself. But the author is here to enrich our picture of this key chapter of the past, and so I'll say Brian DeMar, welcome to the podcast.
2: Uh, thank you for having me, it's a pleasure to be here.
1: Well, and I should add that uh, you're actually back for a, a second appearance uh, five years on from your previous one, so uh, it's a great pleasure to uh, to welcome a uh, yeah repeat appearer. Um, but before we uh, dive into this new book, uh, perhaps I could begin by sort of asking you to remind us, uh, perhaps from five years ago, if we've forgotten some about something of your background, um, and specifically then how you came to be interested in the CCP's land reforms and this kind of subject.
2: Well, I'll first refer our listeners back to my previous appearance to discuss Mao's Cultural Army, which uh, I, I just re-listened to. It holds up that conversation, does I think? Uh, but it, in general, uh, in terms of my background, nothing has changed. I'm I'm still uh, I'm from Hawaii. Uh, I grew up surrounded by Asian culture, but didn't care about Asia in, in any real way until I was at Occidental College and took some classes on Asian religions, actually, and I thought for a little bit that that is what I wanted to do. I actually, when I was at Occidental, I applied to PhD programs in religious studies, and I got rejected by every single one. Uh, And as I often remind my students, sometimes rejection is the best thing that can happen to you. Uh, I bounced around between Ivy Leagues and community colleges and eventually kind of realized where my passion truly lay. And that was in the Chinese countryside. And I ended up at UCLA with, with studying with Philip Huang, who, um, who really understood the importance of rural culture. And that was kind of our bond. And 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 that's why I, I found my home at UCLA studying with Philip Huang. And uh, that eventually led to my dissertation on land reform, political culture and those who, who listened to uh, my previous appearance on the podcast will, will remember that after I finished my dissertation, I, just, I didn't know how to write a book about land reform. So I detoured and wrote my first book about drama troops, which was a wonderful experience in terms of research and, and, and writing. And it was only after I had written my first book, That I was able to have enough distance from my dissertation and to kind of rethink land reform and and, and how I wanted to structure and write about land reform that I was able to write this book.
1: Hmm. So did the uh, drama troops topic not really come into your dissertation at all? I mean, was it a complete diversion where you just literally put everything in the dissertation to one side and uh, ignored it for a bunch of years?
2: there was one chapter in the dissertation about operas and to be very honest it was not a particularly good chapter it was fascinating but it was it was a topic that at least in terms of the sources i had at the moment when i was in grad school it just it it, it was very superficial um but the process of living in china so i lived in china between the years 2000 and 2006 and When I went to do research, and this is something that will probably come up a few times during this conversation, but, you know, archival research in China is very difficult uh, in terms of what you can get access to. And something I realized very quickly was that if I went to a provincial or county archive and said, I'm studying land reform, please show me your land reform documents. There's no way that anyone was going to show me those documents. It's just too politically sensitive. So what I discovered that is I could go and say I'm interested in opera. I'm a big fan of Chinese local opera. Please show me those documents. And so that is um how that kind of research grew from there. But mm-hmm. it really was uh, a departure from the 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 heart and soul if you would uh, of my dissertation. So right. it was, you know, from a, the perspective of a early career academic, it was kind of risky to 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 branch out and to kind of disregard my dissertation. But when the time came to write this book, I, I, I did have uh, kind of a lake up in that I, I felt very comfortable with the topic of land reform.
1: Right. and um, I mean, what was it that kind of brought you back to it? What was it that uh, gave you that sense of comfort uh, at this stage?
2: It was really just the, the, the moment of enlightenment in terms of being able to understand how to write the book. And I I can't stress this enough is that, you know, in 2015 or so, just as I was finishing up my first book, Mao's Cultural Army, I had a conversation with a colleague in which I I told him specifically, I said, I hope someone else writes a book about land reform because I don't want to do it. And I don't (laughs) know how to do it. And then two months later, I saw the same colleague and I said, forget what I just said earlier, I've got it i've I've figured it out. Um, and it was the decision to structure the book as a narrative to really embrace the land reform narrative and the land reform narrative had kind of scared me off because it's it's hard to compete with it. and you know' we we'll, what we'll, we'll might as well talk about Fan Shen and the work of William Hinton right now. This was another big stumbling block for me is that you know there already was an amazing book about land reform and William Hinton's Fenshen, um, Look, I criticize it all the time, but let's, let's be clear that this book is one of the reasons why I study rural China. I remember mm-hmm. exactly where I was when I, when I first read the book, it's, it's just an amazing account of an American radical observing land reform firsthand. And, you know, it's so well-written. You know, I will note it's way too long. You know, uh, Hinton's (laughs) editor should have stepped in there and said, "You got to cut a third of this book right now. Um, It's far too long, and it's very problematic. It essentially is propaganda for the Chinese Communist Party, but it's such a good read that it. I I think that's one of the reasons that no one has written about land reform since Hinton, at least, not in the way that we should have. Uh, I say this all the time. It's kind of amazing to me, but Land Wars is really the first book in English to explore and discuss land reform as an organic whole, which to me is, is still a mind boggling fact because arguably, and I make this argument all the time, land reform is the essential moment in the Chinese revolution. It's the moment when the revolution came to your village and the communists turned your rural community upside down and its importance cannot be overstated. But for so long, there wasn't a book about it. And right. I, to go back to my conversation that I had with my colleague, that that's what we were talking about is that, look, someone's got to write a book about this. And at that t- moment, I, I felt I was the natural candidate because I had studied it for so long. But again, I, I didn't want to do it because I didn't know how to do it. And the, the moment when I realized that the land reform narrative is so important that the best way to write the book is to directly confront that narrative was a real epiphany for me.
1: Mm, mm. Well, we'll perhaps, uh, I mean, we will definitely get onto what, what that narrative is and, uh, and, and how you kind of incorporate it into a book, which I should say, you know, as the definitive at this point, uh, As you mentioned, possibly by virtue of being only uh, book on this subject, or at least as a kind of, at least as a 21st century English language publication uh, on the land reform um, process, it's it's an incredibly engaging uh, volume and one that certainly doesn't suffer from being over lengthy either. In its sort of, it's very kind of pithy and 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 you can really get to grips with it in um, yeah, I think a a very effective way. Um, But we'll jump into the introduction um, and before you kind of tell us a bit more about this sort of narrative structure and how to uh, approach it, I guess, theoretically, we'll talk a bit perhaps about the um, process itself. And uh, as you mentioned, it's the point at which the the revolution arrives uh, at your front door in your village. Um, So could you say something a bit more about why uh, it is such an important point in this uh, communist revolution in China um, and uh, how it's something unique as well, I think, to to the Chinese revolutionary experience?
2: Well, the like I said, it is <clears throat> the moment when the revolution comes home. So if we look at, for example, the Civil War, you know, the Civil War was won on the battlefield. But for most villagers, that was an external event. And, you know, it, it didn't really mean much. But the, the the process of land reform was intentionally structured to be this kind of educational process where the communists would send a work team to your village and you would learn what the revolution meant. You would learn what peasants were. You would learn what landlords are. You would engage in an actual process of rural revolution that would have real life consequences for you and your neighbors, not just for today, but for for decades. So in terms of the the the, the distribution of class labels, all of these things were, were incredibly important. And the, this really was truly unique to China. We're, uh, we'll talk uh, at length, I imagine, about the, the Maoist class system. And it was really how Mao specifically, but also the, the, the Communist Party in general, imagined what villages were like under what you we know, call the, the old regime, under the nationalists, under what they called feudal power, versus uh, this new uh, liberated China that would be created by the Chinese revolution.
1: Hmm. And so the story that you sort of adhere to yourself or you you problematize it, but you also tell it, you know, sincerely attempting to get to grips with the extent to which the actual process on the ground did adhere to a certain storyline and a certain narrative. Um, What was this story? (laughs) And and, um, I guess... How do you see it as being um, helpful in understanding what happened, whether or not things, you know, um, lined up with the, uh, the, the Maoist conception of what the story should be? I trace the origins of this
2: narrative back to Mao Zedong's report on the Hunan countryside when he went back really in the early days of the revolution and observed what was then called a, a peasant movement. And he wrote about it in certain ways and he, he glorified it in in, 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 in in very strong language. And that became the genesis for what I call the land reform narrative, which is the, the story that makes sense of rural revolution in China. And the book is structured around that narrative uh, through various chapters. And I, I did this partly just to create an engaging narrative for readers. Real revolution. I mean, it's incredibly complex. Uh, land reform happened in a million different villages. And so mm. getting readers to kind of wrap their heads around this process is, has always been a challenge. And what I did is I actually drew on my time in the classroom and the way that I explained land reform to my students for years. So the, the chapters are, are structured around that narrative. Uh, first, we have the arrival of the work team. The work team, you know, they're the, the agents of revolution, uh, usually a mixture of experienced rural activists and young intellectuals, often college students. One of the reasons that I really enjoy teaching about land reform to my students is that the people involved in land reform were much like the people in my classroom in that there would often be professors and students out there in the countryside making revolution so so that chapter is a lot about how you know you have these urban intellectuals who find themselves tasked with making rural revolution which is a very difficult thing and you're an outsider there's often you know linguistic problems and how do you go about this process of initiating rural revolution, mm-hmm. which takes us to the, the next chapter, which is about organizing farmers and going down and creating peasant associations about uh, the process of suku or speaking bitterness, where you go and you you meet with the poorest farmers and you get them to uh, you know, speak to speak of all the bad and horrible things that have happened to them in their, their life. And during this process, it's the job of the work team members to, to very subtly, but skillfully connect that suffering with real people in the village and say, well, who was the person who you're paying this rent to? Who gave you that loan that had all that interest? And to create anger towards specific individuals. Which leads us to the next chapter, which is dividing the village into Maoist classes. And one of the things I always emphasize is that all these ideas are new. Um, I'm not the person who first said this, but um, I I do emphasize it very, very strongly is that there were no peasants in China until the arrival of the Chinese uh, Communist Party. Before the communists came, there was the the term for peasant, nongmin. Nobody knew what that was. That's a, that's a, a new term. Um, mm. People just called each other farmers. Right. And uh, in terms of landlord, there were no landlords. This term Diju, is a, a, it's a new one. So, you know, you might just call someone a, a money bags or one of my favorites, of course, is a big belly, you know, someone who just, <laughs> he, he just eats a little bit more than other people. But these were new ideas that you had to create in the village, in order to have the next chapter of land reform and the next chapter of my book, which is the struggle meeting, which is, you know, I call it the furnace of revolution. This is the the, the moment where you have these, uh, you know, poor peasants who've been trained to become activists. They they have. You know, they've been ideologically mobilized to, to get up on stage. And often it's a literal stage. It's, this is a very theatrical uh, moment um, to, to get up there and to publicly denounce their neighbors as feudal exploiters, reactionary landlords, evil tyrants, all of these things. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a moment of of, you know, humiliation and violence. But. That is necessary in land reform. There's a, a great quote from uh, one of the novels I use is that you cannot have land reform without struggle. If there's no struggle, it's not land reform because you have to have struggle for the final chapter of land reform, the final chapter of the book, which is Fan Shen, this kind of concept of a socialist led awakening where poor farmers. They get land, they get property, they have economic security, but they also have this kind of enlightenment where they realize their powers as the peasant masses, and they decide that they want to uh, take control of the village politically, and they want to learn how to study, and they're going to stop, uh, you know, um, you know, beating women and and all the other feudal reactionary things that they might have done in the past. That that's that's all in the past because they have been liberated.
1: Mm. Mm. Well that's a pretty great I think encapsulation of the overall narrative arc and uh, the process which the chapters follow uh, piece by piece and uh, of course that's a, a a fairly you know concise encapsulation of it which uh, uh, I think um uh, conceals much richness and much nuance in the book itself um which we'll uh, now well we'll get into it in a second after I ask just about the story nature of your sources too um you mentioned that one of the Things that you use in these uh, to tell this story are novels themselves. And so, having also mentioned that archival access and, I guess, in-depth um, uh, reading of first-hand sources from this time is complicated and difficult, how did you approach the issue of uh, finding sources for this book? And, uh, yeah, what other alternative uh, readings of this story did you find?
2: Well, I'm very happy to talk about my sources for this book because I am proud of the sources that I uncovered for this book. As I, I mentioned earlier, finding sources on land reform in the People's Republic of China is, is very different. i oh, sorry, well, very difficult. It is very different, but- the, Different the from other things. Is how yeah. difficult, that's right. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll start with some, some of the, the, the rarest stuff I was able to find. In, in 2015, I was able to get a hold of some county level archival materials and, you know, th- these are just kind of the gold standard, right? Handwritten um, by cadres at the local level, um, kind of uh, reports about land reform, including discussions of struggle meetings and how, uh, you know, various methods for torturing landlords. So that I was able to find kind of the the things that I was looking for basically my entire professional career. Um, but... Overall, I would say that more important were two published collections of sources. The the first was a collection of important party documents that was published by Guofang Dashe Chubanshe, so the National Defense University in 1988. Uh, And this collection is marked as Neibu Faxing, which means, you know, Mm -hmm. for internal distribution only. I purchased it online um, and it, it's just a tremendous collection. It is, um, I'd actually first discovered it when I was really early in grad school and I, I saw it and I was like, I, I cannot ever imagine ever reading this thing because it's like a thousand pages long, but I did sit down and, and, and read through it. it. It only took me two months of my life. Uh, the, the payoff was great. Um, and it's great for policy documents, uh, but also letters between top leaders when they discussed land reform. And we'll talk about this uh, later, I'm sure. This includes some letters from uh, Xi Zhongshun, who is uh, Xi Jinping's father. Um, The other collection that I found was a collection of uh, archival documents from southwest China, especially the area around Chongqing and the Sichuan countryside. Um, And there were a lot of great documents there. And this was actually a... You know, it's fascinating how these things happen, but this was a collection that some Chinese academics put together and they had it published in New Zealand at this like uh, this publishing house that seems to only exist that that day when they published it. So um, it was a tr- another tremendous find and because it's so rich and it, it really does have, um, you know, the, the the kind of honest reporting about land reform that you that, you know, when I was in grad school, I, I, I just don't, don't think I ever would have found it. Um, so there is in the book a very strong archival basis for that. Um, it's very important for me. Uh, my, my my editor at Stanford, Marcel, Marcella Maxfield, was really insistent that, you know, we have to have just of a a phenomenal archival base, but I also drew on some narrative uh, sources. So they're very close to my heart for for various reasons. One is that just as a scholar, the reason that I was attracted to history in the first place was for, you know, the the rich narratives that you can find of of Chinese history. So, um, and this was also a big part of my uh, dissertation research. So each chapter starts with a, a vignette from three different narrative treatments of land reform one pro party one anti communist and one western so for the the the, the party narrative i use a uh, dingling's classic land reform novel the sunshines over the sangon river which is really um, you know just the the standard treatment of land reform as this amazing force for good and 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 how the party liberates the countryside for that anti-communist perspective I, I turned to Eileen Chang uh, and her novel love in redland which is not as well known um, it's to be honest not a very good novel it's kind of forgotten these days but it has the exact opposite treatment of land reform. And what's really important that I point out in my book is that both Dingling and Eileen Chang were, were Chinese intellectuals who observed land reform firsthand. Mm. And so they, they knew what they were doing when they wrote about land reform and Eileen Chang flips the script completely and really exposes the, the dark underbelly of land reform and and how uh, the movement could be skewed and abused uh, by cynical work team members who, who didn't really believe in liberating peasants. The Western narrative, I, I draw on William Hinton's Van Shen. Again, that's the book that really drew me to the study of the countryside in the first place. And what I wanted to do there was to First of all, you know, introduce readers to Fan Shen from a different perspective to show how his take on land reform really owes everything to the narrative of revolution that Mao established when he wrote about the peasant movement in Hunan. Hinton, and I'll defend Hinton till the day I die, Hinton was a tremendous author. He has a brilliant way with the the English language and he was idealistic. He wanted to do what was right for the, the Chinese people. But at the same time, he was kind of blind in certain ways to the realities of the Chinese countryside because he accepted the narrative of revolution that the Chinese Communist Party told him. So mm-hmm. I, I wanted to kind of incorporate that into my book. And I, I guess I'll, I'll say now is that I I didn't want my book to just be about what Hinton got got wrong. It's because I think that does a real disservice first to Hinton and, and also the larger story that I, I want to tell. But I, that did have to be part of it to, to, to point out that Look, Fan Shen is an amazing book. Everyone should read it. Uh, But we cannot base our understanding of rural revolution on this book anymore. And that's one of the things I really wanted to accomplish with with Land Wars.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system. Hmm,
1: and I think those sort of, uh, I guess, treatments, whether literary, whether historical, but as you mentioned, with perhaps certain shortcomings, provide a really good counterpoint to the the core narrative, which. Uh, as you say, you trace back to this 1927 uh, study by Mao. Now, given that it begins then and really runs all the way through uh, until after 1949, when the Communist Party took power, it also cuts across, I guess, some of our archetypal divisions or periodizations of Chinese history, the Civil War, and and, and then the immediate sort of post Um, 1949 period. So could you give us a bit of a picture of how the uh, different stages of the actual campaign unfolded uh, from the top, you know, what the actual plans were, uh, both sides of this kind of 1949 watershed? Um, How did the party see its policies kind of ebb and flow with the civil war and everything else that was going on before that?
2: Yeah, so this is another thing that i so one of the reasons I was always attracted to the study of land reform is that it does cross that 1949 divide. I start the book in 1945, which is before the start of formal land reform. I, it, this was a difficult decision for me, but I felt like I, I did have to start it a year early because that year you have campaigns against traitors and tyrants. And this starts the process of rural revolution and the distribution of, of land and, and class labels. Uh, 1946, with the May 4th directive, this is the start of, of actual land reform. And this is a, a period of experimentation where the party really encouraged local cadres to try different things. And there's there's all sorts of, you know, kind of wonderful what-if moments. So, for example, one of the things that happens during this period is they, they experiment with land reform without struggle, where they just go to a village and say, okay, we're going to redistribute land. Uh, We will purchase uh, excess land from, you know, landlords and rich peasants, and we'll give it to the poor. But eventually, these uh, kind of nonviolent methods are discarded. They don't do what the party wants to go back to Mao's uh, Hunan report, there there had to be some violent confrontation in order for peasants to obtain some kind of theoretical uh, liberation. Uh, 1947 sees the release of the outlined land law. And this is the moment of peak egalitarianism in land reform, where basically uh, the land in any given village is to be distributed equally among peasants which is a, a long-held ideal in Chinese history. The idea that, you know, everyone have the, the same amount of land. It speaks to kind of uh, an, an ancient ideal. But in reality, that means that anyone with a little bit extra was going to lose. So that is a, a very confrontational period of land reform. You have a lot of violence and that violence spirals out of control because of the Civil War. Uh, as you mentioned, this is the period of Civil War. And at the time, the communists felt that land reform was one of the keys to winning the Civil War. We'll, right, we'll give land to poor peasants. They'll support the party. They will join the army. They'll fight the nationalists. They, they don't want to lose what they've just gained. In reality it was far more complex. Uh, for one thing, if you give peasants land, a lot of times they don't want to join the army. They want to stay home, farm land, buy a wife and have kids. Um, also there was a fear of retaliation and this came through, um, in a great report that I found that was written by Deng Xiaoping, who we tend to think of as this, you know, pragmatic, uh, Fellow, who's not necessarily all about struggle and violence, but in fact, that's exactly what he was about at the time. Um, where he was leading land reform in a certain area, and they would uh, they would murder some landlords, and then peasants would come to him and say, "Well, you know, we've just murdered this person, and we're worried that if the nationalists come back, uh, we're going to get murdered. So we need to murder these other people." Uh, to preemptively uh, stop that from happening. And so they would murder some more people. And -hmm. then they would say, well, now that we've murdered these people, now we need to murder these other people. And just the violence just spiraled out of control. So Mm -hmm. in 1948, there is a, a stop to land reform. And they realize, the party does, that what they need to do is to wait until the war is basically won and an area is militarily secure before they restart land reform so that essentially happens in 1950 with the release of the land reform law of the PRC this law is different from the outline land law in that it what uh, in the parlance of the time they decide they're going to preserve the rich peasant economy so previously if you were classified as a rich peasant which is a, a peasant who has excess land and property you would lose that but but now those rich peasants would be able to to keep that. In theory, this round of land reform was supposed to be uh, less violent, but um, violence persisted uh, for two basic reasons. One is the outbreak of the Korean War, which led to fears that uh, landlords were going to use that conflict as a, a starting point to launch counter-revolutionary insurrections, which. There's very little evidence of that, but that was the fear, and mm-hmm. the other reason was just the the legacy of civil war land reform, which had been you know immortalized in novels such as Ding Ling's "The Sun Rises Over the Sanggan River," and these novels, and they're not just novels; they're they're operas and and all sorts of other uh, forms of storytelling had. It really deified the idea of violent struggle as essential to the process of land reform. So even in the so-called peaceful, or you know, you know the communists would always frown on the use of that term "peaceful." So let me back away from that term. In the um, you know the more lawful, there we go, the more lawful period of land reform, you still have violence because cadres were you know there, there's they always. It was always better to be too violent than to be
1: peaceful. Hmm. So these are kind of policies enacted or uh, well promulgated from uh, you know the, the party center and, and by theorists and, and leaders um, who, as you mentioned, I mean, including Deng Xiaoping, would continue to be pretty influential uh, for a really surprisingly long time uh, into the into the future. Interesting to see their involvement at this uh, kind of formative stage, um, but. You, you kind of cover the process throughout the book, but particularly, I suppose, in chapters one and two of the work teams arriving and the organisers and the kind of efforts of people with the ideas to put those ideas into practice on the ground. So I just wonder, I mean, since lots of these people were, as you mentioned, perhaps people, you know, the scholarly types that people like your students or academic drusha funds these uh, intellectuals or uh, academic elements or whatever, since those people were those uh those figures coming into the countryside to what extent can we see the process as the city and the urban uh, world of china imposing its will on the countryside i mean does this urban rural paradigm work as a way of understanding what was going on uh, in terms of remodeling the rural areas
2: it, it, it certainly does um you know it's This is a point I make whenever I teach land reform is that, you know, the work teams were largely composed of people from cities. And because of this, their understanding of the countryside was very limited. And that's one of the reasons why this narrative, this land reform narrative is so important because that is what they knew. So, and it's fascinating to me because if you were a young intellectual, and you were preparing to go to the countryside, essentially for the first time, and not just to go to visit to learn, but to make revolution, they, they would tell you, you should read this novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it, you, you go to the countryside, and then you make that, rea- that, 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 that novel become reality. So uh, I, I think that just goes back to the underscoring the importance of that narrative for work teams.
1: Right. And you cover a lot of the, I guess, deep misunderstandings and the kind of scrapes that some of these, uh, you know, maybe more comfortable, uh, petty bourgeois bourgeois type uh, urban figures get into when they confront the realities of the countryside, which you also point out they see in pretty, uh, you know, condemnatory terms of so the the way that this countryside is conceived of as being kind of backward and dark and all the things that uh, I guess are implied by as you mentioned earlier, that the idea of feudalism in this new revolutionary environment. Um, but when it came to kind of con- communicating their vision for how to enact reform, uh, you cover, as you mentioned earlier, too, in chapters two and three, the idea of uh, encouraging peasants to speak bitterness and, uh, you know, narrativize their past struggles, and then also to, in that process, create different classes of people. So, could you say more about what the existing structures of the peasant countryside was before uh, people turned up and started to give it labels like peasant and landlord and so on? What kind of society did the uh, intellectuals find when they appeared? Uh, and, and how did their efforts to kind of re-formulate uh, that society uh, relate to what was already there?
2: There's, there's no simple answer for this. The, the way that I would phrase it is that before the arrival of the communists, the Chinese countryside was endlessly diverse. There was no typical village, and you had huge differences from north to south, east to west. Uh, Just to give a a, a couple of examples, in the north, you had a a lot of poor villages where everyone was poor. There really wasn't a stereotypical landlord. You have some villages where there, there were, in fact, no landlords. Um, in the South, you, you, you did have uh, wealthier villages that might in fact have a, a true landlord who did, did not labor and lived entirely off land rents. But at the same time, there are some other things going on uh, in the South. So for example, you had villages that were completely dominated by a single clan, so a, a family. So when you go to the South to do land reform, Sometimes you're not really dealing with a fam a, a village as much as you're dealing with a, a lineage, and so you have to figure out well, you know, how are we going to get someone from this family to turn on the wealthier people in, in in the family? So, in in any given village, the the situation in terms of land holdings, the, the the personalities, all of these things are, are going to be different. What's important is that the communists did not recognize this diversity because they had a set script that they needed to enact to create land reform. So when they went to the village and so up in the the North, for example, this is a great example, you'd go to a village and you have to find someone to be the landlord for struggle. And you might not have someone who fits that bill. Uh, so you would mislabel someone who's actually a farmer and they would become a uh, a landlord and you know even in the south is the same kind of thing i'm currently uh reading about this 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 village where you know there 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 were landlords but the person who got labeled a landlord was a farmer it's just that there was a activist who hated this particular farmer he had a feud with him and so he tricked the work team into thinking that this farmer was a landlord and ruined this guy and his entire family's life for decades uh, by you know using the the work team to carry out an act of revenge
1: right and I guess as well as mobilizing the uh, kind of new framework that was being placed over the kind of mesh I guess being placed over rural society in its diversity um, for their own you know for, for local kind of, uh, I guess, struggles and local, um, uh, what would you say, grievances to be sort of acted out. That was a, a, an interesting way that people found locally, I think, to, to appropriate um, this kind of top-down imposition of a new, uh, a new system. Um, but I guess the people at the top uh, also realised that there were far more complexities, or some of them did realise that there were far more complexities than uh, perhaps initially met the eye, according to the narrative. Um, and you also chart along the way, including during these different stages of the revolutionary process, different tiers and different levels of peasants and poor peasants and middle peasants and rich peasants, and then other subcategories of landlords and tyrants and 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 uh, laborers and hired hands and so on that uh, are kind of come up with in different places, um, and some disagreements over you know who should be. The beneficiaries or the stewards of revolution. And one I think very interesting case you bring out here is indeed Xi Zhongshun, who you mentioned earlier, uh, working in uh, northwest China, if I'm not mistaken. Um, what was his view and how was it different uh, from Mao and some of the other figures in the party?
2: Well, I, I first want to just note that this is one of the most amazing finds uh, in the process of researching the book. Um, it's as far as I can tell, even in the Chinese language literature, um, this is not discussed. And uh, but it, it, this was in the collection of documents that I found with the, the top party leaders writing letters to each other to kind of talk about their experiences. And to be clear, there he's not he's not a hero per se, but he was the one person who pushed back against Mao and said, "Well, no, you." you're you're wrong about many of your basic ideas concerning rural revolution. Uh, And in part, it was a very nuanced and realistic understanding of the rural class system. In the classic Maoist formulation, poor peasants are poor for one reason, because they're exploited by the forces of feudalism. And Xi Zhongshun Really, when he writes about it, he writes with authority because you can tell that he has done the investigation and that he he understand what's actually going on in the countryside and the areas that he's dealing with. And he says, look, some poor peasants are poor for a reason. Right. Some some poor peasants are and it it pains me to say this, but some poor peasants are lazy. Uh, they, 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 they're, they're, hooligans. They, 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 they don't want to do the work. They like to gamble and they, they like to drink. They like to do drugs. And if you put them in charge of the revolution, bad things are going to happen. Um, and he also was the only person I saw who spoke out against letting class labels become inherited. Uh, which on one level is amazing. You think that more people would have raised this idea because it, it does seem obvious in retrospect that you know that you, you can't have a, a landlord family continue to be labeled a landlord family for generations when they are in fact the poorest people in the village. But he was the one person who came out and said, look, if you label someone, I, th- I think he was referring to the evil tyrant label. And if you have their... Children be evil tyrants, and their children be evil tyrants, and he, I think, he referred to it as a, a kind of like a compared to a, a, just a, a bad fruit that you just can't have passed on from generation to generation. So mm. for for that reason, I was very I was very impressed by his approach. And to, to be honest, in the end, he does still accept many maoist concepts and the importance of struggle and all these things so it's it's not as if he's he's a, a truly enlightened leader but he was the one person who pushed back against mao and for that reason i was i i felt he had to have a, a prominent role in the book
1: mm. and his uh kind of objections um notwithstanding i mean things did kind of carry on uh, as we yes, yes, were so- to do. So <laughs> yes, maybe that's partly why he doesn't, uh, those those uh, ideas of his don't figure particularly high in the uh, in the kind of um, me- memory of, of, of what this period was like uh, since then. Um, and as you say, uh, even if struggle was one of the areas in which he uh, disagreed with Mao, struggle occurred. And so chapter four in particular uh, deals with struggle, as you call it, the uh, furnace of revolution. Um Where did this idea of of struggle come from um, and uh, how, in reality, violent was it? I mean, the book is called Land Wars and, and, you know, (laughs) the narrative of a war is is, is a particular narrative uh, in addition to the other kind of revolutionary or class-based narratives you've already outlined. So to what extent was it a war? And I wonder, actually, if you'd also add something there about the kind of the violence uh, as as, uh, uh, enacted on on women in particular – in the, in the villages that were, that was part of this process too.
2: Well, first I would like to just admit that I always thought that someone would stop me from naming the book land wars. It was a a name that I came up with that I I fell in love with, but I always thought that someone maybe a senior scholar or one of my advisors would say, you you can't name this book land wars, but people like the title. So we we stuck (laughs) with it. Um, and sadly, it's a, an appropriate title. Um, and writing this book, researching this book was often a very depressing process. There was so much violence and, um, you know, people getting buried alive, torture. Um, there was this one day when, and, and as a researcher, I've always struggled with this because on, on one hand, violence and these kind of atrocities are, for, sadly, they're inherently interesting, right? There's something that it's it's atypical, but at the same time, these are real people who are, are suffering. Um, and I remember one day I was reading an account of uh, torture in the Sichuan countryside where they wrapped up a landlord in some kind of bamboo curtain held him upside down and poured uh, uh, water that had been infused with chili pepper uh, down the landlord's nose. And I had this moment where I was, you know, it was like, Oh, this is Sichuanese waterboarding. And oh. for a second, I thought I was so clever. And then I stopped and, and just remembered that this was a real person who was being tortured. And I, I felt a little ashamed of myself, but I had these moments throughout the process. Um, you know, I remember one day when I was doing internet searches for um, in on the Chinese internet for these devices of torture and just, just each new discovery felt more and more horrified and uh, just sick of myself as to why I would have dedicated uh, so many years of my life to studying something that was so brutal And uh, so depressing. And Mm -hmm. that really came home, I think, when I kind of made the discovery concerning the shocking persistence of sexual violence during these years. And this is something that, um, again, I, I felt a little ashamed about in terms of not realizing it beforehand. What it comes down to is that if you read documents Written by the Chinese Communist Party about the problems they encountered during this time, you will not find a sustained discussion about sexual violence. And I think because of that, I had uh, subconsciously, you know, accepted that and not really seen this as an issue. But uh, actually, it was uh, during a, a reread of Hinton and Fan Shen where. He was talking about sexual violence against landlord women that I kind of put everything together. And and part of the problem is it's the way that that Hinton talks about it himself. And again, a lot of respect for William Hinton. He talks in detail about sexual violence, but the way he writes about it and in terms of his, just his, the skill of his writing and the way that he invites readers to view the problem through the perspective of poor peasant activists, it suggests as if it's not a big deal. And right there is the problem, because if you're looking at it from the perspective of the poor peasant activists who have committed sexual assault, that's a bad, that's a bad, bad thing. Mm -hmm. And from that, I went back and reread the documents, reread the archival materials, and what I realized is that for the party, and I it pains me to say this, it sexual abuse against landlord women was not seen as a problem, so they didn't talk about it. So they talk in detail about violence, like, um, you know, like chaotic beatings and trying to get more wealth out of, of landlords. They talk at length about corruption among newly empowered uh, village cadres who, who take all of what we call the fruits of struggle. So the, the wealth generated through struggle meetings, they, they hoard it all for themselves. They, they talk at length about political backsliding among villagers, so who maybe were active during land reform, but after that, they just want to go and farm their fields. So these things are seen as problems, so they're discussed. But sexual violence against landlord women was not seen as a problem, so it's not discussed. And that really creates kind of a problem uh, in terms of trying to understand the scope of sexual violence. What I say in my book is that if you step back and you think about it, there's probably just as many incidents of sexual assault and rape as there were murder of landlords, and we don't know how many people died during land reform. Uh, there's there's all sorts of numbers that get thrown around. Uh, the the one that I've always been the most comfortable with is one million. Right, there's a million villages in, in China. Usually, in land reform, on average, one landlord gets killed. That's a million. So that's the baseline for sexual assault and. In the book, I'm, I'm very straightforward and clear that, look, this needs to be discussed more. This needs to be studied more. Um, it's, it's, it's not the focus of the book. It's something that kind of uh, occurred to me while I was in the process of writing. And I know that there are scholars out there who are working on this. And um, I look forward to, to, to reading what they find. For me, though, it was uh, another very depressing moment of research when writing this book.
1: Yeah, I mean, it uh, it does it does come out that way and as part of a picture of, as you say, extreme violence uh, to which the uh, label war is perhaps not uh, unapposite. Um, so in that sense, I mean, certain people looking at what happened, including at the time, as you mentioned, could have seen it more in terms of just plundering the wealth of those in villages that had wealth, as you say, grabbing the, the fruits of struggle um, and uh, Basically, kind of moving money around and and basically de um, de, de de racinating or disenfranchising the kind of historic uh, powers in the villages. In f- chapter five and a conclusion, you kind of reflect on to what extent there was something more to it than just uh, you know moving moving uh, moving money from the hands of uh, certain wealthier people to, to to some other people's hands, uh, and to what extent there was maybe. Uh, a genuine sort of long-lasting revolutionary legacy to this? Was transformation uh, achieved in terms of consciousness, in terms of uh, class and uh, social reorganization? What are your kind of overall thoughts on that sort of persistent legacy uh, in the the decades that followed this uh, very violent process?
2: This was really important to me when I was writing the book. I wanted to give voice to the fact that a lot of people – truly benefited from land reform. I I know that due to the nature of my sources, I know that due to the overwhelming violence that occurred during these years and all the injustices, that there is no shortage of evidence that land reform ruined people's lives. But at the same time, it is a fact that needs to be stated and restated, is that a lot of poor farmers got land that they desperately needed and they benefited materially and physically from land reform. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's an important fact. Um, But overall, when we look at the legacy of land reform, um, the, the, the truth is, is that these poor farmers who got land, they, gave it back to the state a couple of years later during collectivization. So if you want to consider the legacy of land reform, giving land to the peasants can cannot be the legacy. Uh, what I find as the true legacy of land reform is the distribution of class labels, because whatever land you got, as I said, they, they took it away in a couple of years, but that class label That stayed with you for the rest of your life, and it was given to your children and and grandchildren. So if you had the misfortune of being a landlord, 20 years later, when it was time for the cultural revolution, your kids would be dragged up on a stage and struggled as landlords, even though they were the poorest people in the village. Uh, So... Land reform in terms of its legacy is incredibly complex, uh, and I wanted to give voice to that. And I, I think I did. I'm, I'm very pleased that uh, the book has been criticized uh, from, from both angles. I've been said to be uh, too harsh to the communists and also um, too nice to them in terms of not not fully denouncing land reform. So I've always felt that if I'm criticized by both sides, I must be doing something right. <laughs>
1: And I, I guess it's interesting then to reflect on the fact that one of the enduring legacies, as you see it, of the process to root out the old feudal ways was one that was inherently hereditary. You know, if if, if the one thing that persisted was something to do with um, passing on from one generation to another, then uh, you have to wonder, I guess, to what extent, um, you know, old ways had genuinely been destroyed. But also in the kind of hereditary vein, we've mentioned uh, Xi Zhongshun a bit there, and I just wondered; it may be that you don't really have any particular thoughts on this, but was that w- would there be any significance as you see it to the fact that Xi Jinping was involved in this way, um, to uh, you know the the, the current uh, chairman of the Communist Party being Xi Jinping, and having that kind of inheritance?
2: Oh, I, I have thoughts. Um, well, the first thing I would say is that the the, the main legacy so far is that. People in China, while they are aware of my book and have been reading my book, they have a lot of difficulty discussing my book online because they're afraid to, to write the names of Xi Jinping or his father. Uh, so that kind of uh, always leads to some interesting gymnastics as they attempt to talk about my book without mentioning those two names. Uh, the, the The truth is, when I was writing this book, I thought that the involvement of, of Xi Jinping's father created this interesting moment where maybe the Chinese Communist Party could for once openly reevaluate re-eval- land reform and its legacy. Um, for a long time, I've, I've, I've said that the that land reform is one of the pillars of the legitimacy of the Chinese Communist Party, along with fighting Japan uh during the, the war against Japanese imperialism, it was one of the things that the party did right. There's this idea that, you know, the the Chinese Communist Party liberated the, the peasant masses. And that's very important for the legitimacy of the party. Mm-hmm. Now, if you've read the book, you know that land Reform did not liberate, <laughs> I mean, as a forced liberation, it's, it's highly dubious. As so many, so many lives were destroyed and, and so many things went wrong. And because Xi Jinping's father was, you know, for lack of a better term, on the right side of history. Here, I thought that that maybe this book coming out that this would be a great opportunity for the Chinese Communist Party to to reevaluate that legacy, and and by highlighting Xi Jinping and, and and the things that he did that um, that were right. But uh, so far that has not happened. I'm still waiting for my invitation to Zhongnanhai to sit down and discuss rural revolution with Xi Jinping. But uh, in, case, in case Xi Jinping is listening, I am available, and uh, I look forward to having that conversation.
1: I'm sure the uh, the invitation will be in the mail. Um, yes. Maybe you could ask him about that thing about um, Xi Zhongshan's relationship with the Dalai Lama as well. That might uh, might be an interesting additional line of inquiry. Um, but in any case, Brian, that's a very uh, thought-provoking uh, note on which to end. I think um, before we let you go, though, uh, having asked you uh, at the end of uh, the, your previous MBN appearance what you're working on, and your answer was this: uh, What will we be interviewing you about next time, uh, in in however many years? What have you got on the on the go?
2: When I was doing research for land wars, I came across a set of documents that I'm. Av- very excited to to, to work with. They are uh, documents from a county public security bureau uh, discussing criminal cases right during the same time period. So 1949 to 1951. The book is not about land reform. Land reform is occurring in the background of these criminal cases. These are cases against men who are charged uh, with various Crimes of Counter-Revolution. So there are crimes against bandits, against spies, against evil tyrants. And these files are remarkable. They are very difficult to work with. It's, it's been uh, a, a real challenge to kind of get the, the, the secrets, if you will, out of the archive and, and into the written word. But that is what I've been doing Um, And I think that readers will see there are some real, very deep connections between Land Wars and this next project, uh, essentially around this issue of, of narrative. I am someone who is obsessed with narrative. I've been obsessed with narrative since I was an undergrad. And what I want to do in this next project is to see what happens when you have really rich, good archival, for the lack of a better word, grassroots sources. And you try to turn that into a narrative that is understandable to uh, a non-specialist. So that's, Hmm. that's, that's kind of what I'm working on. I'm very excited to, 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 to write this book and I will be very excited to, to talk about it in a a few years uh, (laughs) in my third appearance on the podcast.
1: Sure. Well, no rush there. I mean, uh, we'll, we'll be ready. Um, but uh, in the meantime, um, that sounds fantastic. Um, and thank you so much, Brian, for coming on and talking about this project. It's been great talking to you.
2: It's been my pleasure.
1: Listeners, uh, it's been a pleasure having you as well. Uh, uh, thank you as ever for listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. It's a podcast on the New Books Network, and it will be back with you again very soon. Goodbye.